Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing the benefits and questions surrounding COVID-19 pooled testing practices. To address these are IDSA members, Dr. Romney Humphreys with Vanderbilt University and Dr. Melissa Miller with the University of North Carolina. Thank you both for being here. Dr. Miller, I'd like to start off with you. What is sample pooling and what are the benefits of using it for COVID-19? Well, as you've all heard, there's been this continued call for increased testing. We need more and more testing and we are limited by a number of things, some of which are test reagents. So one potential solution is called pool testing um, that might help mitigate some of these issues. And pool testing is a method to test more people using fewer reagents by combining the sample from multiple people into one pooled sample. That one sample would then be tested for SARS-CoV-2 RNA. So for example, Samples from five different people could be combined, and instead of five different tests on each of those individuals, you would do one test, and that would be the pooled specimen. So then if that specimen is negative, you can presume, uh, with some caveats, of course, that all five patient samples that were included in that pool are also negative. So in this way, you've saved four tests. You've done one test instead of five tests in this example that I've shown you. However, if the pool tests positive, then you have to rerun the tests on each individual to identify the positive samples. So in that case, you would be doing six tests instead of five tests. So to really be effective, um, the use of pooling, you would want the majority of pooled samples to test negative. So that means you're really only going to com- apply this type of strategy to a population that has very low prevalence of disease for COVID-19 in this example. Thank you for explaining that so clearly, Dr. Miller. Dr. Humphreys, is pool testing the answer to the challenges we currently face in testing? And what are some of the limitations? We just heard Dr. Miller touch on one big limitation. The reason the topic of pool testing has come up is that we are faced with this unprecedented situation where we are testing a huge number of people for one specific diagnosis. And right now in the United States and globally, we're dealing with massive shortages when it comes to reagents. So of course, the key advantage to pooled testing is that it can be done with a smaller number of reagents than what might be needed for testing individual samples one at a time. It also has the advantage of potentially improving the throughput or turnaround time for results, but with the caveat that that is only true if most specimens are negative. Once you have to stop and break apart a pool, that adds some extra time. So then the key limitations to this type of testing is that it inevitably reduces the sensitivity of the test. By pooling one positive sample in with a variety of negatives, you're essentially watering down the sample. And so that may result in some false negatives. The other thing I'd comment on is the fact that specimen collection remains key. So even if we are doing pool testing, you know, we really are reliant on a very well collected specimen, which would theoretically have the largest amount of virus and therefore less influenced by this watering down effect. The other limitation to pool testing is it can be quite complex. 
And so it's well suited to larger labs that have liquid handling robotics and staffing that are adept and familiar with this type of strategy. So a couple of things to consider when it comes to doing pool testing include, you know, who are the patients that we're interested in testing? And when it comes to COVID-19, that involves the infection status and the dynamics of the infection. One example of where we've used pooled testing very successfully is with HIV diagnostics. Patients who have an acute infection caused by HIV tend to have very, very high amounts of virus in their blood. And so therefore, this watering down effect does not have as much of an impact as it might for other infections. In contrast with COVID, we are you know, not totally clear on how much virus might be present in the specimens of some of these patients, be they acute infections or asymptomatic infections as an example. The other thing to consider, as Dr. Miller indicated, is the positivity rate. This depends on your patient population. This would not make a lot of sense for patients that we're testing over and over again, say for example, healthcare workers that we'd like to have returned to work the chances of them being positive is much higher. The setting also makes a difference. So if they're inpatient or outpatient and the time to results. So as I mentioned, for negatives, it can speed things up a little bit. But if you do have a positive patient, it can actually slow things down because you're then testing that patient twice. And then, of course, the resources that are in the lab. And Dr. Miller, I'm sure, would agree that one of the biggest challenges that we've had aside from uh, the availability of reagents is the availability of people to do the testing. And so if you don't have good robotics, good information technology infrastructure, you're reliant on your people and people are not easy to come by, especially those that have experienced uh, performing lab testing, as well as depending on your state, the licensure that might be required. I think what sometimes people don't realize is the manual part of the pooling process. Even with um, certain informatics and instrumentation available, we have found in our lab kind of the documentation of who is in what pool and even how to document electronically how to report each of those when the entire pool is negative. Um, even major electronic medical record systems that many of our labs use aren't able to accommodate this. So sometimes we're talking about literally putting specimen stickers on a piece of paper to include who is in that pool. And that's not a very efficient way to do laboratory testing. Thank you both for your insights. Dr. Miller, can you address how supply limitations factor into the decision to pool samples? And what is the prevalence of disease needed for sample pooling to be an appropriate option. You touched on this, but can you go a little deeper? I do think supply limitations factor into this discussion, but it's also overall test capacity limitations. So as Dr. Humphreys just mentioned, it's more than just what supplies we can get. It also includes making sure we have enough skilled workforce, instrumentation to automate some of this, whether we're talking pooling or not. Just testing instrumentation has been a challenge for labs to get as we've been asked very quickly in a short period 
period of time to scale up testing to numbers we don't even know where we're going. You know, that, that's the, the golden question is what test capacity are we trying to build? And we don't have an easy answer for that. It's just we need more than we have now so we continue to build this capacity. And so with that comes all of these shortages. So supply shortages from anywhere from the swabs that we collect the specimens with to the transport devices and media that are used to the tests themselves, including pipette tips. This is, you know, plastics has been something we've had a hard time getting in recent weeks. And the people, you know, we can't forget that there's people behind all of these tests that are doing the tests, interpreting the tests, reporting the tests that have been a major challenge. So anything that we can do to help increase the number of reportable tests that we have, the number of people that we can report a result for with not impacting any of those other potential challenges significantly is a win. So pooling potentially meets at least some of these limitations, one of which is supply limitations. So as I mentioned before, in a negative pool of five, right, you're doing one test instead of doing five tests. We'd probably still be talking about pooling, even if we had a steady test supply, the reagents for doing the test, just because of the huge demand of testing that we're being asked to do really outstrips our ability of what we can do in the U.S. currently. You know, we're not usually doing large asymptomatic population testing in the clinical lab. So this pandemic has really stressed the ability of our labs to scale up and meet this need. And so now we're, we're trying to fix it on the back end of how can we do more testing? Dr. Humphreys mentioned, you know, the percent positive is, is really important for disease prevalence in terms of thinking about when pooling might be an appropriate option. So, you know, if you have a 10 to 20 percent positivity rate, this is not uh, a patient population that you would want to do pooling on because a lot of your pools are going to be positive and you're going to be spending a lot of time and probably more resources breaking down all of those pools. So it has been suggested somewhere around 5% or less should be um, where the disease prevalence should be in a particular population. So it doesn't have to be your overall positivity rate. You might have a positivity rate in symptomatic patients of 10 or more percent, but if you look at your asymptomatic patient populations, that's generally going to be less than 5%. So you would want to look at specific patient populations, maybe not every specimen that you're getting into the lab, but say, okay, we're going to apply this to our um, pre-admission screening asymptomatic population. So for us, this is about a 1% positivity rate, which means we could test a lot of patients in pools and be able to report them um, without really impacting the huge number of tests that we would have to use to test them individually. But you want to make sure that, that you know how the test performs in the patient population you're going to use it in. And so you definitely have to validate and determine um, what trade-off are you getting in sensitivity when you do pooling of samples in a specific patient population. But your prevalence should be quite low, definitely below 5% to have the most impact for pooling. Thank you, Dr. Miller, for your extensive answer to that question. Dr. Humphreys, back to you. What circumstances or populations do you think are most appropriate for pooled testing? Dr. Miller was spot on. I mean, it really has to be patient populations where the percent positivity is quite low, and that will vary by geography. It also is very dynamic, so it varies over time. 
And so if you think about it, the, the population where it makes the most sense is those asymptomatic, you know, quote unquote, screening tests where we're screening larger populations, um, where we expect the positivity rate to be quite low. Um, the other thing I would say is that this needs to be done in a lab that A, is able to handle the logistics of pooling, being that they have the people and the resources and the institutional support to do this, but also in a setting where the testing strategy can be dynamic. As we've all experienced through this pandemic, positivity rates come and go. And even if you're looking simply at a low prevalence population, that may change very rapidly. Say, for example, um, if you're screening children that are returning to school, and if there is an increase or a spike in that positivity rate, those tests would need to be transitioned to a non-pooling strategy. And that can happen relatively quickly. And so it requires very good communication between the clinical providers or uh, organizers of this testing and the lab. And, and unfortunately, you know, that is not always an easy aspect. I mean, I think that it's important to emphasize how complex this whole pandemic has been. And so making sure that those communication lines are open um, and going both ways is really, really important. Um, and so if an institution just doesn't have the resources to be able to be dynamic and shift strategies for select populations, perhaps pooling is not the best way to go. The other thing is that being able to know who the patient is being tested is another thing that needs to be built. And so um, many of us have developed all sorts of very complex systems to identify which samples are more rapid turnaround time is required for, um, which samples perhaps are for outpatients where a, a slower time to result is needed. So having a good system to help identify those is really important. Um, I'll be honest, I think most of us have really struggled with this. It requires both uh, good information technology, good um, communication with the people who are placing the orders, as well as, um, you know, some pretty strict guidance on which patient qualifies for which type of test. And, and that's a complex thing to do when you're dealing with several thousand uh, patients being tested on a daily basis. You raise some very interesting points, Dr. Humphreys. Thank you. Dr. Miller, you work at the University of North Carolina. It has been suggested that pooled testing might be the best way to handle testing large groups of students returning to universities such as yours. What are your thoughts on this? Well, today happens to be the first day of classes here at UNC Chapel Hill, and I'm happy to report on my drive-in. Everyone I saw walking down the main street here on campus had their masks on, so I'm very hopeful. But students are coming back, you know, and different campuses have different numbers of students coming back. So how you're able to test them does depend on what the strategy is. Pooling can be an effective way to test large groups of asymptomatics, such as students, who would be primary candidates to um, apply pooling to. But I think there are a lot of questions that we still have to answer. For example, how often do they need to be tested? Do they need to be tested daily? Do they need to be tested weekly? In reality, you probably need to test them daily, or at least close to it, because the negative test today doesn't really give you a negative passport for the next week or two. 
really only tells you it's valid at this point in time when the specimen is collected. You're negative at that point in time. So is it practical to use these highly sensitive nucleic acid amplification tests that our labs are using um, and apply routine pooling for large populations of students? I will tell you in our lab, it is not practical. Due to all the challenges that we've mentioned, the need for automation, the electronic documentation and reporting of pools and staffing, for us to be able to test our entire student population at the University of North Carolina on a daily basis or really even on a weekly basis is not a practical approach from us from a clinical lab perspective. It would be very disruptive to our routine testing of symptomatic and hospitalized patients, but I think there are some paths forward. For example, it might be more feasible to do this as a component of a research study, um, looking at prevalence on campuses, and, and there is a research study going on um, that we collaborate with, um, with the Dittmer Lab here at UNC, and they're looking at um, graduate students and faculty on campus. Pooling could be incorporated to that type of research testing algorithm to test more patients more frequently. But I think it's clear whatever approach we use to test students needs to be frequent and that there needs to be combined with very strong contact tracing efforts to be effective. Give some very practical insight and advice there, Dr. Miller. Thank you. This last question I'd like to pose to both of you. Dr. Humphreys, I'll start with you. What resources do labs need from industry and the federal government to support rapid testing where it's most needed? One of the first things is good communication across the board on where these types of strategies make sense and where they simply do not. Doing pool testing is not a cure-all for our testing challenges. And in fact, it can add a lot of extra complexity to what we're doing and slow the whole process down. Um, that being said, I think that, as Dr. Miller indicated earlier, one of the big challenges is that the information technology that we use routinely in clinical labs, as well as in hospital electronic medical record systems, is not well suited to pool testing. It's really designed on a model where one sample is collected and tested individually as compared to being able to manage the pooling. And so that would be one thing that could be very, very helpful. Um, similarly, building capacity from an information technology perspective on test ordering. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, it can be very difficult for the lab to know which patient, um, you know, this nasopharyngeal swab belongs to as far as are they symptomatic, asymptomatic, um, is this a sample that might make sense from a pooling perspective or not. And so having that capability that's a little bit more dynamic to build it to the needs as well as to change it relatively quickly is, is a big issue that could be very helpful. We also know, you know, consumables like the pipette tips Dr. Miller mentioned, as well as the instrumentation are incredibly short supply. I know the companies and industry is working as hard as they can to ramp up capacity, but this is not a simple thing. We want to provide quality instrumentation, quality reagents to labs, and that takes time to certify the production uh, facilities that make these instruments and make sure all of the quality control is being done in the right way. And so I think those are two big things that, that might be helpful from uh, a larger perspective across the United States. And I'm sure Dr. Miller will have additional very good suggestions. 
Well, related to pooling and getting more tests out to people who may otherwise not be able to be tested or might not be able to be tested as frequently, um, I think we need the manufacturers to step up and get an emergency use authorization claim for pooling on the commercial tests for RNA detection. So to my no knowledge, no company has done this yet. I know some were investigating it and then dropped it. Um, so I do not think that there has been, you know, a company that a lot of our labs are using their EUA test for has a pooling um, EUA claim. So what that means is each individual lab must submit its own EUA because we're modifying that of the manufacturing to include pooling. So in a time in which we're short on testing supplies and people and time to do all of this, each lab that's interested in pooling is now doing um, an EUA application to be able to do pooling um, even after they validate it. So I think in addition, we could get support from the FDA. In my opinion, I think the FDA's requirement for this should be relaxed for CLIA labs who we can validate um, independently the patient population that we want to pool. We know well how to understand the effects of pooling on sensitivity, what patient populations um, we should be testing, and there's guidance from the FDA on how to approach this. But I think it's it's really important that, that we as laboratories, as clinical laboratories, the FDA and the manufacturers, we have to work together to figure out how to make this easier for labs who, who do have the possibility of doing pooling and increasing test capacity in that way to make it more amenable to labs actually being able to do it. We have been validated for pooling in our lab for over a month now, um, and we waited to submit an EUA because the company we use for our commercial test was also applying for EUA. That's the best path forward because it benefits many laboratories. Um, subsequently, they've decided not to apply for it, and so now we're having to turn around and apply for our own EUA. And this is an obstacle um, for laboratories to rapidly implement pooling with their validation data. You know, if we take a step back, this pandemic has really been a unique situation for clinical labs where across the board we are seeing laboratories interact directly with the FDA for the testing that we provide. This has, you know, been done sporadically in the past, but Clinical labs simply do not have the departments, the regulatory personnel, um, and all of these things that are required to navigate the complexities of submitting to the FDA. For many, many years, we've developed testing, very good testing, uh, within the lab underneath uh, the clinical lab improvement amendments. And this testing uh, has been stalled uh, by this additional requirement to submit data to the FDA. And so what that means is labs perform a study as we would normally, they write it up as we would normally, but then there's this whole other new process which involves submitting that data to the FDA and then negotiating with the FDA on the data that's present there. Oftentimes, those negotiations might provide some interesting and useful suggestions, but it oftentimes it doesn't, and it just provides delays and more complexity. And so many labs simply have avoided this pathway altogether, and I do think that has reduced the amount of testing that we're able to do in this country, unfortunately. At this time, I'd like to open the floor for any final thoughts. I would just say to listeners, make sure when you're listening to the news and hearing people talking about 
um, you know, why aren't labs doing X, Y, or Z to increase capacity? You know, why aren't we testing saliva on everyone? Why are we not doing pooling? That to make sure you are listening to the experts, the infectious disease and clinical microbiology experts, because I think as you've heard today, there are a lot of nuances in the testing that we do any, anywhere from a regulatory perspective, which we just talked about, to impacts on sensitivity, just because a specimen is easy to collect or, you know, you might might be able to get more tests by pooling doesn't mean it's the right path forward in particular um, populations. So I would just caution listeners to make sure that you're listening to the experts because it's often not as simple as it might seem on face value. And, you know, if you work at an institution, you have the opportunity to stop by the lab, I'd encourage you to, you know, go give them a high five. <laughs> People have been working very, very hard as we all have through this pandemic. Um, and you know, being very nimble and adjusting testing processes. And I think we, like everyone else, is, is getting a little tired. So, um, you know, just uh, give a little props to the people who are doing all the testing. They're working incredibly hard and it's such a skilled group of people. Thank you for raising that, doctors. They are working incredibly hard. I'd like to thank doctors Miller and Humphreys for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.